Well, this morning as we uh, continue on in our new series in the book of Isaiah, uh, Lord willing, we're going to cover chapters 2, 3, and 4 uh, this morning. It really hangs together nicely as a unit. I won't be able to say uh, very much about any one particular verse, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to see how this section is structured. There's a, there's a theme I think we can discern, and I'm hoping that will be helpful uh, for us. I'm just going to read, I think, the second chapter now, and then we'll pause, I'll pray, and then we will uh, look at the text together. So, Isaiah chapter 2. This is the word of God. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So, people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and the holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. 
They will flee to caverns in the rocks and the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Well, before we uh, start working through this text and then on into chapter 3 and 4, we're going to pray uh, and ask the Lord's direction. Just a, just a note for you before we do that, though. Uh, Sunday school did start this week uh, at 9.30. Uh, there are classes for all ages. Um, we have an adult Sunday school class that meets in the auditorium at 9.30. And just so you know, next Sunday, we're starting into a new series, and it's awesome. Yeah, who's leading it? Oh, interesting. Well, we'll just take a moment individually to pray for forgiveness, and then I'll lead us together in prayer. So let's pray. Our Father, you are uh, the, the Lord who alone is to be exalted. You call us to do everything for your glory, but you also, in doing that, call us to imitate you. For you do all things for your own glory, and rightly so. For you alone deserve to be glorified. You alone deserve to be exalted. And so, Lord, we do ask that you will, by your grace and spirit, align us with truth and align us with who you are so that we are not an arrogant people who ought to be afraid to stand before you. Father, humble us by your grace through the spirit. Make us a truly humble people. Not people who engage in uh, fraudulent, uh, masochistic uh, tendencies to just demean ourselves and have low self-esteem and, and to beat ourselves up. But Lord, help us to have a proper view of who we are in light of who you are. Loved and accepted by Christ. Created in your image with, with incredible dignity and glory and yet corrupted in sin. People who have a great deal of which they can be ashamed, but who are loved nonetheless, who are loved purely and truly, and who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So help us to see ourselves properly, and help us to know that we can never see ourselves properly until we see you properly. So enlarge our capacity to understand you, the living God. And then help us to see how we ought to live in your light. Help us to see what our societies look like to you. And then help us to see the glory of the Messiah that you have given us, your Son, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. You alone know uh, where we are coming from this week. You know the circumstances of our lives. You know... Uh, the events of the last few days, you know everything about us. And we're here now 
we want to meet with you. And maybe partly we don't actually want to meet with you. Maybe we haven't counted the cost of what it would look like to actually be confronted with a consuming fire whose spirit really comes and moves through this place. But Lord, we've sung those words. Now give us hearts that long for the fulfillment of them in truth. Lord, we would ask that you would, that you would, we know that you are here. Show your power. Exalt your name so that you alone are worshipped. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now this text uh, begins sort of into the vision proper. Chapter 1 gives you some introductory themes. Now we're into what Isaiah sees in a spiritual sense, this vision that he has concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And I'm not going to do this every time. Although I could almost do this, you know, week after week after week. I'm not sure if you are aware of this. And if, if you're not, I, I apologize for raiding on your parade. But do you know that not every Christian interprets every biblical prophecy in exactly the same way? If you don't, you're about to find out. So from the very beginning, you know, we come into Isaiah, and I'm cast into a little bit of a dilemma, because I don't know how much to say. I don't know how interested you are or how profitable it is. to say, well, you know, there's a range of options in terms of how people take this text. And, and there are an awful lot of actually really good, godly believers who love the Lord, who know the Bible much better than I do, who, who sort of, they track out in, in this way and in this way, and there's this nuance, and there's this theological system, and some people interpret it this way. And so I just don't know how interesting that is or how edifying that is. Uh, so right now, and I'm not going to do this, I can do this all the time in Isaiah. I'm just going to mention a couple of the options. They're all evangelical options. They're all within the pale. Uh, not all of them are right. The one that I hold to, which I'm not going to tell you, is of course the right one. Uh, but nonetheless, just here's a little bit of a range from the beginning. You'll note the phrase in verse 2, in the last days. So you're moving forward into something. In the last days. Now what exactly do we mean by that? Well, as you work through Isaiah, what you'll find is that there are a lot of people who believe this phrase, in the last days, is referring to a reign of Jesus Christ at the end of this age that we're in, where Christ will return, and this is often the language of this is drawn out of Revelation chapter 20, and he will establish a reign, a millennial reign of 1,000 years here on earth, where there will be widespread you know, fecundity and fertility and fruitfulness, where because Christ himself is reigning uh, in Jerusalem and David's throne, uh, then the nations will sort of stream to Jerusalem. He will be the judge. He will be the king. There will be no more war. And this will be a golden age millennium when Christ reigns on the earth. It's a very, very common uh, interpretation, particularly something from the church fathers, 
Uh, and today, in one of its forms, uh, it's a very recent form, but there's a dispensational form of this millennial reign, too. Uh, dispensationalism was not taught, taught for the first 1,800 years of the church history, but in North America and in England, last 150 years or so, it's been a very influential system. So dispensationalists come at the millennium in a different way from other people in church history, but nonetheless, that's sort of the view. Christ is reigning on earth for a thousand years. A lot of these things will take place then, okay? Other people say, no, there's going to be some elements here where this is really almost looking towards the Christ's return, final judgment, moving into new heavens and new earth. Okay? Others will say, well, look, you're actually told in the New Testament by John, we are in the last days. That's what he says in his letter. And so if we're already in the last days then when you have references prophetically to the last days, it's a reference to what's going on in the church age in between the advents of Christ, sort of in between his first coming and his second coming. Because John says we're already in the last days. Now, with that then, a lot of these details become interpreted in symbolic ways. So instead of there not being any war at all, Generically, you, you see peace advancing through the gospel. Okay? So I just say that to mention uh, that as we work through Isaiah, there will be lots of times when people will have maybe a slightly different view than you do about exactly the force of the text. Sometimes these are actually more overlapping than we might think. Uh, and you know, the text never tells you, by the way, here's where you should interpret it symbolically. Here we should interpret it literally. Okay? So, so I just say that I just acknowledge that there are a range of options. It's all I'm doing right now, uh, just so we can all be friends. Uh, and then I'm going to move on saying this, that basically what I want to do is regardless of the particular uh, scheme that you locate these things in, or the system that you locate these things in, I still think, even in a pre-theological way, so even if you have no system at all, even if you sit there and go, oh my goodness, no, I, what, are you, what are you going on about? Like, usually it takes you, you know, uh, five minutes to lose. Me, you lost in the first 30 seconds. You know, what's, what's wrong this morning? Uh, basically, you want to say, even if you don't have a, a system that you cling to yourself, there are overarching ways of reading the text which can be profitable no matter which system you hold to. And so my goal is not to teach a particular eschatological prophetic system if through Isaiah. My goal is to say, look, regardless of how you approach these things, there are still big overarching themes that everyone can agree on. This is the main force of the passage. Okay? That didn't count for my time. That was like pre-sermon material. So here's where the sermon starts then. Looking for the big picture, working from the center out. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Clearly, what you are being told is that in the last days, God himself is going to assert his dominance and privacy. There is going to be Nothing on earth like God. God's home is going to be established and firm. God's home is going to be exalted and raised up. 
there's going to be no rival to God at all. And actually, the way this is depicted is even visually. He is literally, in a sense, going to tower over everyone. There's a spatial, oh, uh, there's a spatial relationship here where the Lord's mountain, the place where the Lord dwells, is exalted and towers over all of the earth. So the first thing you're being told is, look, the mark of the last days is, the, is, is that God is going to exalt himself in the sight of all nations. And those nations, then, are going to come to God. It's going to be impossible to see God exalted and raised high and, and be neutral or to rebel at this time. People are going to respond to God. They're going to come to God. And not only are they going to come to God, this is an amazing thing. They are actually coming to God to be taught by him. He will teach us his ways. Now, there's a sense in which, of course, and this is, this is, why, you know, this is why it actually ought to be um, somewhat exciting to actually gather on a Sunday morning together. One of the, one of the things that, that I am always aware of is my, my job every Sunday is to fail utterly at representing how good the Word of God is. And so the job becomes... On the spectrum of failure, because it will always be a failure, you will never come close to doing justice to what God has said in his character. So my success becomes to fail as little as possible, right? to, to close that gap. Not to be an enormous failure, not to be an incredible failure, just to be like a middle-of-the-road failure. Like, like that's what it's going to be. It's always going to be a failure. There is no way to ever do justice to who God is. There's no way to ever do justice to the gospel. There's no way to ever do justice to the word of God. It's never going to happen. But even on a Sunday morning, we gather, and through the word and by the Holy Spirit, not, be, not, through, not through me, not, not through a human being, but, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You can be taught by God. You, you, you can actually come and meet with the living God, and He teaches you. It's an amazing thing. And so in these last days, you say, whether it's through the preaching of the Word of God, or whether it's sort of in an unmediated sense, people, one of the benefits, one of the blessings, is that God exalts Himself, He draws people to Himself, and He teaches them Himself. He's spoken. His spirit is the teacher. He teaches us so we can walk in his paths. He judges us. He's the one who settles our disputes. His law goes out. His word goes out. The people live at peace with one another. The people take their instruments of war and they, they craft them into things that are helpful uh, for, you know, for, for gardening and for agriculture. And, and, and I'm not sure you've ever thought about this. I, I realize that a lot of our technological advancements actually even in, in the civilian world have come because of military uh, research and all of the rest. But, but have, have, you ever, have you ever thought, not only, not only the human cost, I mean, the human cost of war is unspeakable. But have you ever, have you ever thought 
even if even if just in the last 100 years, just in the last 100 years, if all of the the human effort, thought, hours that have gone into creating and sustaining machines of war, if that budget and that brain power and all of those people had poured their resources into healthcare, had poured their resources in, into creating sustainable economy and sustainable agriculture around the world, the trillions of dollars, the, the uncountable hundreds of millions of hours of thought and research, if that had been channeled positively, instead of channeled into, and I'm not saying it wasn't necessary, but this is one of the horrors of it, is sometimes maybe it is necessary to have these things in this world. But it's such a shame, such a waste. All that could be done, which will never be done, because these things have been, uh, because all of this has been channeled into war. It, these last days, one of the marks is that God creates peace. Oh, all of our energy can be focused on creating shalom rather than fighting with one another how different things would be. And so then God calls the people, all right, look, I'm, I'm here. I will teach you. And the exhortation is, come. Come and walk in the light of the Lord. Uh, don't, don't live in the darkness of society anymore. Come to the Lord who's exalted and, and raised on high. Let him teach you that you can walk in his paths. His paths are, are characterized by being bathed in light. Don't walk in the valley of the shadow of death anymore. Don't walk in darkness anymore. Walk in the light of the Lord. This is what he offers you. Now, from here until chapter 4, verse 2, there's a terrible textual division. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 is obviously not supposed to be the first verse of chapter 4. It's obviously the, the, should be the end of chapter 3. Uh, but from here until chapter 4, verse 1, you're basically told, look, here's the alternative. You're either going to walk in the light of the Lord, you're either going to be taught by Him, or this is what's going to happen. Because the Lord alone is going to be exalted. No one else will be exalted on that day. In the last days, it's God and God alone. So what happens if you don't go to God? What happens if you don't walk in his light? Well, this is what it looks like. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. Why? They're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination. They embrace pagan customs. So the people are filled with false religion. But look what else they're filled with. And this business terrifying collection of verses. This could be written to Canada and the United States today. Their land is full of silver and gold. We are the richest society in the history of the world. There is no end to their treasures. Now you have to understand this. In the ancient world, their treasures were like a cheetah, and a diamond. So when we're talking about treasures, like, they didn't have the Smithsonian. Like, can you imagine like, in the ancient world if like, they had their own private Lear jet? 
Like, like that would have been incredible, unimaginable. You could fly somewhere. You have a car. Like, it is just amazing what we have as sort of regular people far outstrips the luxuries and the treasures of the richest rulers in the history of the world back at that time. A, a, a middle-class Canadian lived in luxury that King David could never have imagined. In terms of personal comfort, diet, clothes, entertainment, all the rest. But even then, their land is full of treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no other trace. These are two things, economy and military. One of the reasons that in Deuteronomy 17, the king is told, do not get many horses, is because horses, the, the cavalry, was, it was like the tank uh, it was like the tank divisions and the air force in terms of uh, military technology back then. So don't put your trust in horses. Don't put your trust in chariots. Their land is filled with military and money. Now, if you have a ton of money and you have a ton of military, it's awfully hard not to start putting your trust in those things. That's just human nature. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their fingers have made. So what you get this, this picture that society is filled with false religion, the rejection of God, let's say. The rejection of God, substituted in the place of God, you have money, Military technology and what we ourselves have made. Now, I defy you in a nice way to actually think about Canada and the United States and tell me money, military, technology, what we ourselves have accomplished and achieved and made. Does that not fit our nations just perfectly combined with the rejection of God. Now, what happens when you live in a society like that? People will be brought low and everyone humbled. Here's one of the things that we need to remember. A lot of us, even as Christians act like functional atheists when it comes to how society works. So, a lot of us, honestly, we just... And I'm not, I'm not saying don't be wise. I'm not saying that, you know, that there aren't metrics for these things. I, I understand. But, you basically go, okay, this is, how, this is how the economic markets work. A little downturn, a little recession, everyone's finally able to depression, market correction. But... Long term, the markets will just do this. Well, maybe. Maybe if there's no God, the markets will just do that forever. Maybe one day God's going to say, you know what? I'm tired of you trusting in your money and your markets and your math. Enough of this. You know, there's a God who sits on the throne of the universe. He, he, he's more than capable of devaluing currencies. Uh, he's more than capable of frustrating the wisdom of all of the pundits. No, God, God can establish nations. He can also bring nations down. History is littered with the corpses of superpowers. We must always remember, yes, be wise. 
we, we, we do our best in society. Yes, there are, there are social studies. Yes, yes, yes. But there is a God who judges too. And, and I don't mean this to be flippant, but, but if God decides that, he, he, that he's tired of, of you know, the attitude that people in North America have towards him, even Warren Buffett's not shrewd enough in investments to get around God if God wants to bring the system down. He's more than capable of doing that. He can frustrate the wisdom of the wise. He catches the crafty in their craftiness. No one can outmaneuver God. Everyone will be humble. So the response then, very metaphorically, verses 10 through 18, is everyone flees. Because God is bringing down everything. The tall trees are, are metaphors for you know, the arrogant, the big shots, everyone who's important, everyone who has power, everyone who has cachet. God's bringing it all down. All the, all the merchant ships, God's bringing it all down. To the point where verse 17 becomes the key. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's a repetition of verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God has a day in store where it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how strong you are, it doesn't matter how rich you are, God is going to make sure whoever you are, whatever your background is, whatever your accomplishments are, whatever you, whoever you think you are, you will be humbled before God one day. Now, the glory of the gospel, and one of the glorious things of the gospel, is that the gospel calls it just to humble yourself now. Just to recognize that, that, that you are someone who needs the grace of God. Just recognize that. And just, just humble yourself. Come before God now. And he receives you with open arms and he lifts you up. But if you insist on your own merit that, that somehow you're going to be good enough to stand before God, he's going to bring you down. It's the way it works. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The idols will totally disappear. And then you have this repetition when the Lord rises to shake the earth. And the Lord rises to shake the earth. This is something he's going to do. He's going to rise. He's going to upset the whole system one day. The whole global system. Everything people are trusting in is going to disappear. And the Lord alone is going to be exalted. Everyone will be humbled. If you read this text carefully, that's obviously the theme. I said it again and again and again. God is going to be exalted. Everyone is going to be humbled. So, the conclusion... Now, now you, if you read, you read Revelation, Revelation is drawing on this imagery when the people are crying out on the day of the Lamb for the hills and the rocks to fall on them and the mountains to cover them because the great day of the wrath of the Lamb is coming. Who can stand? That imagery is drawn from here. Hide in the rocks. Because God has come to shake the earth. Well, what's the conclusion at the end of all of this? It's verse 22. As a result, stop trusting in people. Don't put your ultimate hope in people. They just have the breath in their nostrils. One day that will stop. Why hold them in esteem compared to God? Chapter 3, then, functions to show you what society looks like when everyone is trusting in other things besides God and what God will ultimately do. So now you're moving from sort of personally to society. 
See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. That is, God is taking away the basic necessities of life. The hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the, diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty, the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. What God says is this, I'm taking away your basic necessities, I'm taking away all of your societal props. Everyone who's necessary for proper governance in society, everyone you might rely on except me, I'm taking them away. Everything is being removed. I will make mere youths their officials, children will rule over them. One of the marks, and I, I'll say more about this maybe in a little bit, or maybe I'll just restrain myself. One of the marks of a nation that's under the judgment of God you just look at the leadership and you go, oh my goodness, it's impossible that that person is a leader of a country like that. How is it possible? What, what has gone wrong? In a society where someone like this is electable. Well, what's gone wrong is the society itself. And so it's the judgment of God. I'll make mere use. When he says mere use, what he means is, what he means is I'm going to make someone totally unqualified your leader. How, good luck functioning in a society with totally incompetent leadership. It's a judgment of God. It's one of the... It's one of the catastrophic judgments of God. I will give you leaders who are totally incompetent. People will oppress each other. Man against man, neighbor against neighbor, the young will rise up against the old, no, and the nobody against the honored. So you have a complete inversion of societal values. A man will seize one of his brothers and his father says and say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. Take heart, charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy, I have no food or clothing in my house, do not make me the leader of the people. So the society has, has disintegrated to such a point where like, if you have a coat, you're qualified to be the gov in the government. Like, if you have a toupee, you can be in the government, you can be a leader. And it's like, you look at this, you go, what, what has happened to bring us to a point where the qualification for being the leader is you have a shirt? That's a bad place to be in in a society. And the person with the shirt, who everyone wants to be the gov in the government, they go, I don't want that. I don't want to take charge of this heap of ruins. Are you kidding? The last thing I want to do is be in charge of this. This is a train wreck. And that's precisely what it is. So, verse 8, Jerusalem staggers. The whole, the whole thing is toppling. Judah is falling. Why? Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. You have a country where the rhetoric and the action is against what God has said. In grace and in mercy, he will permit. One of the amazing things about God is his patience. He will be provoked to his face by a nation for a time. But never forever.
does our nation defy the glory of God in word and in deed? If it does, it is only a matter of time before it will topple. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sins like Sodom. They do not hide it. There is no shame. What is an abomination to God is paraded and celebrated. Woe to them! They have brought disaster upon themselves. It is inevitable that there will be disaster for a society like this in time, unless there's a revival, unless there's actual widespread repentance and change. Verse 10 is a bombshell in context. You can almost miss this, but it's your lifeline. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. In a society disintegrating, in a society going to hell, there's this one little verse. Oh, judgment, destruction, everything taken away, yes. But that's not the message for, for, for the righteous, God says. Oh, they live in the society. Their bank account gets ruined because of inflation, too. When that when nation goes to war, when when the bombs fall, the bombs fall in the neighborhood, and it's not like the houses of the righteous stand, and the houses of the unrighteous are destroyed. The 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 block is wiped out, whether you're righteous or not. But tell the righteous, God says, I make a distinction. I know them, even in death, even in destruction, even in ruin, even in hardship. Oh, I know who they are. It will be well with them. Even when my hand of judgment falls on the nation that they live in, they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. And then, and then that, little, that little lifeline, that, that little bit of hope, and he's gone on, woe to the wicked disasters upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. You've suppressed my people. Women rule over them. My people, your guides, lead you astray. They turn you from the path. I mean, if you're... If you're going somewhere and you're trusting a guide and the guide takes you in the wrong direction, you're in a lot of trouble. So one of the reasons we need to be careful, we need to be careful about not blindly following leaders. It's God's path. God's word is our authority. People can lead us astray. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of the people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The ones who are supposed to be taking care of it have ruined it. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. So what you find here, again, it's interesting, as society is disintegrating, the charge God has against them is social injustice. You are not taking care of the vulnerable in society. You are not taking care of the marginalized. You're abusing people. You're exploiting people for your own gain and benefit. So I am going to judge you. The reason God can't have other judges judging is they're all corrupt. They call good evil and evil good. They, they, they take bribes. They pervert justice. They, they have their own agenda. God says, well, I'm going to judge that. 
I myself will pronounce the sentence. This is the sentence against the women of society. And my goodness, if, if again, if there is a, a dead parallel to our society, it's here. The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps fall. You look at this, you know, like, I don't know. I, I, at least in media advertising, it's one of the <laughs> blessed reasons, uh, you know, that, that, or I feel, sounds like hashtag blessed. I feel blessed that I actually don't like watching TV. But I honestly feel like even if I liked watching TV, which I don't, I just don't, I don't know if I would. The commercials are so vile. I just don't know how you could do it. I, I really don't. I, I don't know how you could watch a primetime television without turning the channel when commercial breaks are on. It's just appalling to me, my personal opinion. Advertising is not only insipid, it's consumeristic, obviously, but it's so offensively sexually exploitive. And you look at our society, and you look at so often fashion, demeanor, interaction, presentation. And obviously, men are equally responsible for cultivating this sort of environment. But these women are noted for being arrogant, vain, shallow, over-sexualized, primping and preening, putting all of their, their money and time into physical appearance. They're trusting in their beauty, their makeup, their fashion, their sexual appeal. That sounds an awful lot, like an awful lot of people in our society. So what does God do? He takes it all away. It's the exact same theme. God will take it all away. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankles and sashes, the perfume balls and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the persons and mirrors, the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. It's all going away. The, the, the huge walk-in closet with all of the shoes, it's going away. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Probably a rope of captivity leading slaves away. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn destitute. She will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. What's being said here is this. Look. This society is so evil. You, you, you have utter rebellion, military might and all the rest. War is coming. So many young men are going to die. There's going to be a seven to one ratio. And these women who, who were so proud of all their flaunted sexuality, all, all of their shallowness, uh, 
I want to be really. I'm not gonna. I was gonna say a particular name from someone in society. I'm not gonna bother now because uh, that would be unkind. But but you you know, representative figures like this in society, people who stand as this sort of image, who are imitated and widely followed by lots of people on social media, they have their own TV shows and all the rest. You look at this and you go, you know what? God is ending it. He's sick of it. This is not femininity. It's an outrageous disgrace. And, and, and shame. Deep shame. On the men in society. For encouraging and endorsing and enjoying a femininity, an expression of femininity that is so appalling in the sight of God. And so the result is sickness and death and decay. That's the society. That's what happens to the society that does not exalt the Lord alone. Now, in terms of bracketing, though, the first few verses of this vision are about the glory of the exalted God. The last few verses of this unit are about how God's going to do this. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. The branch of the Lord is the Messiah. We get this in different places. Is Samuel, other prophets make this clear. The branch of the Lord is the Messiah. And one of the things that is so wonderful about this verse is, you know what? There really is un, unbelievable and inexpressible beauty in the universe. But it's not found in the horrific caricature of the underdressed, over-sexualized women who act this way. Their beauty is disgusting in the sight of God, and it's taken away. Real beauty. The, 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 the most beautiful beauty there is is found in moral character. The most beautiful beauty there is is found in Jesus Christ. He's the one who's beautiful. As you have this contrast, you're supposed to say, look, this is what society tells you is beautiful. Look what, look what it is in God's sight. Look what he's going to do. Oh, but you want to see beauty. There is beauty in the land, but it's the Lord. Don't settle. Don't, don't, don't get tricked. Don't, don't buy into this lie. Look to God. Look to Jesus. He's beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land is the pride and glory of the survivors. Not only is the Messiah beautiful, he blesses you. He gives gifts to you abundantly in his grace. He gives you fruit to enjoy. Fruit that abides. Those who are left in Zion, who are managers, will be called holy. In other words, even when all of society is utterly disintegrating and God brings horrific judgment, those who are left who know him actually are holy. There is a righteous remnant. And even when God brings judgment to a nation, he understands, he discerns the difference between those who are wicked and those who are his people. Those who are left will actually be holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord 
will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by spirit of judgment and spirit of fire. Even here, God is willing to cleanse. And this is one of the things that, that gives you hope, is that, that, that any time, you can, you can say to anyone, that if they will humble themselves before God, he'll wash them, he'll make them clean, he'll save them, he'll make them holy, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, there is, self, there is saving grace for everyone who humbles themselves before God. No matter what, he will cleanse them. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. And this, of course, is obviously a reference to Exodus when they're led by the glory cloud in the day and the burning pillar of fire at night. What God is saying is, I'm going to intimately lead you myself. My presence will be there. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. Now, in a society where everything's disintegrated, you think about, think about refugee camps, you think about some of the mass homelessness that have been in places like Sudan and Rwanda recently. And God says, I myself am going to be your shelter. It, 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 it's, this is an anachronism, but it, it's, it's Dylan-esque. Shelter from the storm. Bob Dylan actually gets a lot of his a lot of his lyrics from from myth and, and literature and, and Bible. Come in, find shelter from the storm. That's the last note here that God calls to people. Come in. Come into my glory. I'll cleanse you. I'll heal you. Just, just, just humble yourself. Come in. Come in. Come into the glory. There's a canopy of glory over you. You will be holy. I will wash you clean. I'll heal your wounds. I'll bind you up. I'll make you whole and pure. You will live in my beauty and glory. I'll bless you with fruit forever. Come in. I'm a shelter from the storm. And what a storm is being unleashed in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Even in judgment, there is a call of mercy and grace. A few verses, the Lord will be exalted. Judgment and utter disintegration of everything. A few verses of hope and glory in the Messiah. The first and last words of this vision our glory, mercy, healing, exaltation of the Lord alone. That horrible middle section is designed to get you to see how stark the alternatives are. It's either this or it's this. It's either humble yourself before the Lord and love the Messiah or be lumped into this group that rebels and is ultimately destroyed uh, forever before him. As we said last week, some of you will say that Isaiah is the gospel in the Old Testament. And this, this passage is. The Lord is exalted. Sinners, you will be judged and destroyed. Or, submit yourself to the branch. Submit yourself to Jesus. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.